much. It's a joy to be here uh, again today. And I think this is uh, third time I've been with you all. And uh, wow, um, Deborah, my wife, and I have talked often about you and what has been our experience in, in being here. And um, it, you have a gift of welcome. I think the last time I was here, I was talked about, about welcome. And uh, so it really is wonderful to receive that. Now, before I begin, are you going to read or am I going to read? I'll read. Okay. Here we go. Okay. He's going he's gonna to read. And we're going to be, the, the um, message is about seeking the welfare of the city. And there are a couple of texts that I'd like us to weigh over, one from Jeremiah 29 and the other one from 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's amazing the synergy between these two. Uh, Jeremiah um, is into letter writing, as was Peter. So uh, take right. it away. Here we go. And uh, I forgot to mention, Dr. We, we actually heard a sermon on this not too long ago. This is kind of our charter set of verses, but I didn't mention it to you, so I feel like today's the oh my. Holy Spirit. So this oh. is rerun. Uh, no, no, okay. no. This will be much better <laughs> than that speaker who was uh, going crazy with scheduling all summer long. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. That's me. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Je <laughs> That's why I had you read it. No, 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 no. I, uh, I don't know. I'm stumbling here. And the Queen Mother, getting ahead of myself, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And as Dr. Green has already mentioned, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to your dreams that you dream, for it is a lie, for they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. And then to First Peter, here, uh, instead of the word honorable, I will uh, use the word good, as our biblical expert um, has uh, um, <laughs> recommended. First Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they may malign you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, be subject to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do good. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. Uh, we're reading here from um, the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. And uh, as all Bible translations, this has gone through uh, some revisions along the way. Uh, and if you use the NIV, use that. Yeah, if you take a look inside, you'll see some of them, uh, the 1984 edition, and then there are the updated uh, 2011 edition. This is just kind of the process of Bible translation. Uh, I was involved in the New Revised Standard Version revision committee. I did 2 Peter and Jude in there and didn't do 1 Peter. So if I had done 1 Peter, I would have made the changes that, <laughs> that are mentioned up there. So... Uh, that's, that's, but I'll, I'll explain what that's about in, in just a few minutes. Uh, first off, how many of you are, are going back to college? College? Whoa. Where are you going? Where are you going? Wheaton? Where else? Are you all Wheatonites? Oh my word. I know that place. You might meet me in class. Uh, one of the textbooks in New Testament Antiquity. Uh, yeah, you, we'll, we'll, I'll see you there. Okay. Uh, what else? Any other colleges? No, Grand, just Grand Canyon University. Grand Canyon University. Wonderful. Uh, online or going there in person? Online. Great. Any place else? Well, it's great to be here with you all. And I tell you what, let's pray for the college students. Could we do that at the beginning? Lord, we come to you in Christ's name, and we thank you for. Uh, the good work that you've done in these young folk and bringing in this time and uh, during their college and university education. We pray for them and really all the students here as they start back to school. Pray that you'd be with them, give them wisdom, uh, great attention. Um, Father, that you would help them through those difficult days and sometimes long nights as they study. Let them learn and prepare them for all the things that you've called them to. In the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Great time of life being in college. That's why I became a college professor. I didn't want to grow up I like Peter Pan. So, anyway, going back to, to our, our, our brother Jeremiah and Peter, uh, both of them wrote letters to communities that were trying to seek, trying to find ways to live out their faith as Jews and, and Christians, respectively in the midst of societies that were very hostile to them. Now, we saw that uh, Jeremiah here, for example, the prophets, witnessed one of the greatest losses to the Jewish people apart from their captivity in, in Egypt. The land of Judah was invaded by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century B.C. Their land was taken, the temple was destroyed, and the people in the southern kingdom of Judah were taken and, and exiled, taken as a force in forced migration to Babylon. Babylon. Now, um, uh, the prophet says that they would remain there for 70 years, and then and only then would they be able to return home after their long exile in an alien land. Now, Jeremiah's statements to them are filled with, with hope and, and promise there will be an end to this exile. Uh, though they have experienced grievous loss through 
invasion and forced migration to a land not their own. God sees them. And that's a beautiful thing for all of our lives. Amen? That regardless of our situation, regardless of the adversities that we face, regardless of the mess that we're in, either because of others or because of our own foolishness at times, whatever problems we're in, God is with with us. Amen? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And it's sometimes hard to see. And Jeremiah writes to a people that had a hard time seeing where God was in their midst. God sees them, remembers them, is with them, and offers them a firm promise. Thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know that the plans that I have for you are plans for your welfare and not your harm to give you in a future and hope. But the question is, how were they then to live during this 70 years, long years of exile in constant conflict with their uh, neighbors and society? Were they to be uh, people that continued to war against those that have taken them uh, captives? Well, Jeremiah's counsel is that they make a life for themselves in Babylon of all places, building houses, he says, planting gardens, carrying on with family life through marriage and having children. They as a people were told to build and not diminish, to not give up. All was not lost. But I think that the most astounding part of this passage and the letter from uh, Jeremiah comes in, in verse 7. How then should they interact with the very people who had subjugated them, who had taken them captive, who had taken their land and destroyed their sacred place of worship? How should they react towards them? Now, I don't know exactly what their life was like when they got to Babylon as exiles, but I don't imagine that their Babylonian neighbors came over, said hi, and embraced them, bringing them bunt cake. I don't think that that happened. They remained as aliens in the land. Well, Jeremiah's counsel to them is really astounding. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of that place and pray the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, the NIV translates it this way. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for the, to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, the Christians to whom Peter wrote in his first letter were in an analogous situation. Not identical, but some interesting parallels between them. They were exiles, but unlike the Jewish community, they had become aliens within the communities where they had lived, where they had grown up, where they were born. (coughs) Uh, The majority of them 
of the believers to whom Peter writes, and he's writing to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. These are, uh, it was a circular letter uh, written to churches in uh, Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Uh, they were Gentiles who had turned to Christ, and they had abandoned the idols of their communities, of their family, of their, of their society, the historical, the ancient, the established religion of the day. Uh, like the Thessalonians to whom Paul writes, uh, they have turned away from the idols. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And Peter has a similar note in chapter 4, verse 3. He reminds them that they had lived long enough, their past life, in debauchery. What a word. We don't use that very often, do we, today? In debauchery, in passions, in drunkenness, in revels, in carousing, and lawless idolatry. And there it is. He's talking about the way that they were full participants in the sins of their society, full participants in the banquets that were held sometimes in the confines of the temples in the uh, presence of the deities, the, the, uh, the idols. Well, Peter writes to these churches and recalls their conversion from these practices and way of life He says that Christ has redeemed them. They're part of a new Exodus community. He says, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal conduct inherited from your ancestors. Now, in the ancient world, nobody cared if you uh, added another god to your pantheon, to the gods that you worship. In fact, in the city of Corinth, there was a temple just downtown in the Central Forum that was dedicated to all the gods because you didn't want to leave anyone out, right? So if you added one more god to the gods that you were worshiping, that was fine. But the last thing you would do is abandon the gods, the traditional gods of your ancestors. That would be the worst thing imaginable. But Peter says, you know that you are ransomed from the feudal conduct inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect and blemish. When you think about the whole Exodus story there, they were part of this new Exodus, not from Egypt, but from the immorality and the idolatrous worship of their day in their world. Peter says that they were born anew, and that's not a concept that you only find in the Gospel of John. They had new birth. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he addresses them as newborn infants in the faith. He says that they've purified their souls through obedience to the truth. And I think that's an interesting way that Peter talks about the way that they received the Gospel. They heard the Gospel as a truth of God. And they had faith, but that was an obedience of faith. Their faith led them to assent and say yes to the truth of the gospel. They purified their souls in obedience to the truth in 122 in 1 Peter. And then he calls them to an ethic of love, which I see as part of your community here. He says, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply 
from the heart. You, you think about these people. They, they had become as aliens in the very society where they lived, in the families where they lived. And there's this new community that's formed. And that community's got to hold together because we need one another. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Come on, I'm an old Pentecostal, okay? Can I hear an amen? <laughs> so we need one another. Little children love one another. That's the counsel in 1 John, but it's also the counsel here and the exhortation of the Apostle Peter, John's good buddy. Love one another deeply or fervently from the heart. And as a community, listen, listen to these community virtues. They are to have, quote, in chapter 3, verse 8, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's the stuff That's the glue of our church. Through their conversion to Christ, they become alienated from their contemporaries and their community. And Peter uses the language of exile, talking about their life in society in a way that's not far removed from what Jeremiah was talking about. He says that they're to live in the fear of God, honoring God, and... um, as, as exiles, uh, he says, honoring God above all things in 117 during the time of your exile. You think about the 70 years of Jeremiah's uh, letter. He exhorts him saying in 211, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. But unlike the Jewish exiles in Jeremiah's day, These believers had become exiles and aliens in their own society, as I mentioned before, because of their new faith in Christ. From their baptism onward, they became the other. From their baptism onward, they became the other. They were othered by their community. People who were there but no longer fully belonged And they were subjected to tremendous hostility, both verbal, public, and physical, because they had abandoned the gods of their communities. In that world, the gods, we have to understand this, the gods were considered to be the protectors and benefactors of the communities, of the societies. And the fundamental duty of every person was to maintain the Pax Deorum, peace with the gods. And how do you do that? By participating in the religion of your fathers, your mothers, your ancestors, and by participating in the civic cults of your community. Um, Religion wasn't simply a matter of the heart. We, We talk about asking Jesus into my heart. We talk about Jesus as my personal savior. And uh, there's an individualism that has come into our faith, but we have to understand that religion and faith in the ancient world was a public and a community good. And to abandon the gods of your community was an antisocial act. If the gods are protectors of your community and benefactors of community, if you break with the Pax Deorum, if you break peace with God, that may well bring God's, the gods' wrath against you and against your community. So we find that 
there were civic deities like Artemis in Ephesus, and you can read about that in, in the book of Acts. Uh, there were uh, the Kabiri, the twin gods in Thessalonica. Uh, there was also the worship of the emperor as a god, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus, and, and so on. In fact, there were even temples built to the emperor, complete with sacrifices and prayers and priesthood to honor the god as, excuse me, to honor the emperor as, as a god. It was part of what was known as the imperial cult. There was a, uh, uh, a temple in uh, what is now Ankara, Turkey, the ancient Ankaya, that survived uh, from Roman times and is dedicated to the Emperor Augustus in Rome. And you can see there a minaret. Now it's a, um, a, a mosque. But this was a temple dedicated uh, for the worship of Augustus and Rome. And we've got a, a slide here, a little reconstruction of what this uh, would have looked like. You know, can, can you imagine having a church building sort of like that? Um, you know, I, Maybe not quite like that, but, but uh, I think about the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College has all these, these uh, uh, columns there. Those are Doric columns, but uh, the Billy Graham Center has uh, Corinthian columns. So what do they call it now? It's a Billy Graham what? Billy Graham Hall. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm a bit retro here. <laughs> so also in Thessalonica, which had a temple dedicated to Julius Caesar and Augustus, who surprisingly was called the, the son of God. Did you know that? That the emperor Augustus, the emperor during the time when Jesus was born, was called uh, Dewey Filius, the son of God, because he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar died, Halley's Comet appeared, and everyone thought that was a deification of Julius Caesar. And they said, there goes Julius and so his adopted son was called the Son of God. And that's why the New Testament comes along and, and Jesus is the Son of God, which means that he is yeah, heir to the uh, title given to uh, David, the promise given to uh, Solomon or David. Uh, he, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. But also, it's a really in-your-face statement that Jesus is the Son of God, the true Son of God, and not the emperor. It's no wonder that Christians were, were in trouble all the time because they rejected the imperial cult. And the one that we worship is Jesus, the true Son of God. Can I hear an amen? Okay, I'm going to turn you all Pentecostals by the time this is over, okay? They had broken with the traditional way of life of their ancestors, including its cult. There was a breakdown, therefore, in the social relationships with their community because of their nonconformity. Um, and they, they also quit the, the, the banquets under the auspices of the deity uh, deities. And uh, Peter says, you spent enough time in doing that. Now, this was especially problematic for wives. The norm in the ancient world that a wife had to worship and serve the gods that her husband served. And uh, Plutarch, the moralist, who was also a priest of Apollo at Delphi, right at the end of the first century, in his uh, book called Advice to the Bride and Groom, says this, the wife should not have her own friends, but should have the fr same friends as her husband. 
The gods are the first and most important friends. Therefore, she should worship and know only those gods whom her husband worships. So what would happen if a woman, a wife, decided to abandon the gods of her husband and worship Christ and serve Christ? Slaves as well would encounter grave problems if they participated in cults not sanctioned by their masters. Comuela gave his advice to slaves who served as overseers. He said, he shall offer no sacrifice except by direction of his master. Cato said something similar. He must perform no religious rites with only certain exceptions. He had to worship the gods of the master. What would happen to Christian slaves who refused to worship and offer sacrifice to the gods alongside their masters. And we've got a, a slide here. Um, this is uh, uh, a depiction of a sacrificial scene. That's uh, a little bit later in the New Testament. That's the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, there. And you can see the temple in the background here. And I, I think this is absolutely fascinating because you have, uh, he's, the emperor has the toga pulled up over his head. It was a sign that he was officiating as the priest here. You've got somebody there. Um, I don't know whether those are children or slaves because very often slaves are depicted as small human beings, as, as children. They're about to offer sacrifice, and that bull, I love the bull. He's looking on, what's going on here, kids? Uh, he thinks it's a party, but if you look right to the right of the bull, you find a slave. And what has he got? Sledgehammer? Axe? Guess what he's going to do with that? I won't describe it, but it's gory, okay? So this is right at the beginning of a sacrificial scene. But notice the point here is that the slave is participating in the cult of the master. What would happen to the Christian slave that refused to participate in the sacrifice of his master? Now, the beautiful thing about the gospel was that it was open to everyone. It was open to the Jewish community, the Gentiles, the, the Macedonians, the, the Latins, the barbarians, the Scythians. It was open to the slave and the free, the men and the women, the children and the adults. There's a welcome, there's an openness, as I mentioned here last time I was with you. The reaction of Christians in their communities, mainly to Christians in their communities, mainly took the form of verbal abuse and, and social ostracism. Uh, they were spoken evil of, denigrated, being accused of those who do evil, Peter says. They were called evildoers in 4.15 and in 1 Peter. And that was a, a, a language that talked about those that participated in, in, um, in magic, who poison other people, or were impious, didn't worship the gods. Evildoers was being the worst of the worst. Now Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about Christians of the day, and he calls them a people who are hated because of their vices. That's what Romans thought of Christians. And Suetonius, in his Lives of the Caesars, says that they were followers of, quote, a new and evil superstition. Christianity didn't have good press in the world of that day. They, Christians were being reviled, according to 1 Peter. They were being cursed publicly. They were called to give an account of their faith publicly. It was 
difficult to live as a Christian in that time. They were reproached. They were insulted. They were blasphemed, denigrated publicly. Now, Peter tells him in 2.15 that this is just the ignorance of foolish people. But the reality was that they were called into question for their faith, and we understand why. Well, though the persecution they endured was mainly in the form of social rejection and verbal abuse, physical attacks were not out of the question. He has to tell the wives to not be afraid because spousal abuse happened. Um, slaves could have been beaten. And really, in chapter 4, verse 1, anyone could suffer physically for their faith, even as Christ had suffered. And I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about is um, a theology of suffering. Right? I mean, it's not a popular thing, right? You know, follow Jesus. What's going to happen? Well, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow him. You're going to have to endure the rejection that that he endured. And very often we pass over in our seeker-friendly church environment very often. Just come to Jesus, everything will be wonderful. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because we follow the crucified one. And we we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And as he calls us as disciples, he says, if anyone is going to follow me, anyone can be my disciple. Got to take up their cross. And follow me. And the cross isn't just an instrument of inconvenience, but you know the loss that comes with that. So how did they react to all this? I mean, this is a lot of, a lot of stuff happening in their lives, a lot of hostility being thrown at them. And for some of them, um, they had become ashamed of their faith. He has to tell them, Peter tells them in 4.16, if any of you suffers uh, as a Christian, let him or her not be ashamed. And the New Testament deals over and over with the issue of shame. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But he says, Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he writes to Timothy in the same way. He says, don't be ashamed of of, uh, me or as a prisoner or of the gospel. He calls Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 to not be ashamed. If you suffer as a Christian, you should not be ashamed. Um, You know, there's an inscription from Epidaurus that speaks of being ashamed because of being ridiculed by others. And uh, the Stoic Musonius Rufus spoke of the shame of those who did things that did not correspond to their social uh, position. So they had to struggle under the weight of social rejection and shame. And one of the ways that, that people dealt with shame and rejection was to retaliate. To retaliate, um, this is not alien to us. Uh, have you ever been on the highway and somebody cut you off? What do you want to do? <laughs> I won't ask, okay? But what do we do when somebody treats us wrong? And sometimes the very first reaction that we have is, how can I get them? In Costa Rica, where Deborah and I lived for many years, uh, they had a wonderful expression called, Seru charle el piso. Seru charle el piso. 
cut the floor out from somebody. So somebody did you wrong, they had a most subtle and most effective way to cut the floor out from somebody, which meant that they would subject them somehow to humiliation and shame. In other words, retaliation. Um, So you had to um, regain your honor by retaliating, by avenging yourself. In fact, one Roman mother, the mother of the Gracchi, said this, You will say that it is a wonderful thing to avenge yourself upon your enemies. I consider vengeance as important as anyone. So vengeance was a high social value of the day. Are are any of you Star Trek fans? Come on, fess up. Best of the Star Trek movies, in my estimation, was The Wrath of Khan. Huh? Anyway, there's one line in there. If you haven't seen it, see it. Wrath of Khan, Ricardo Montalban uh, played Khan. And there's one line in there. It's worth it to see the whole movie just for the line. Where he says uh, he wants to get back at Captain James T. Kirk. And he says, uh, Wrath is a dish best served up cold. Ooh. And, you know, it just, it just makes you shiver the way he says it. It's... Should I say that in church? Is that okay? <laughs> I, our text for today will be Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> okay, but the idea is, is what was going on. You avenge yourself. You retaliate, and and Peter has to counsel them in three 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 nine. Uh, not return reviling for reviling or insult for insult. Uh, he calls them to do good to those that have done them wrong. And he gives them the example of Jesus uh, in chapter 2, verse 23, who when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. So fear and terror were also entering in. There's a lot of language of, uh, of fear for the women in 3.6 and for everyone. Uh, don't be afraid of them, neither fear, be, uh, fear their fear. And he quotes Isaiah 8.12. Not only were they uh, ashamed and and tempted to retaliate and fearful given the change in their social situation, uh, they were also tempted to go back to their old way of life. In fact, um, in chapter 5, Peter talks about the devil as uh, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he recognized that they're in not just a a social conflict, but they're in a spiritual battle. The devil walks around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the main fear is apostasy. There was a um, uh, a, a text from the Babylonian Talmud that says, Satan descends and seduces rises and accuses, assumes great powers, and takes the soul. Pretty grim. Oh, that was the introduction of what I wanted to say this morning. Again, I'm an old Pentecostal. We, we can't say hello for in under 20 minutes. You know, it, it just... But here's what I can get at. The question that Peter seeks to answer is the same question that Jeremiah faced. How should the people of God 
live in a society that is hostile to the faith and the practice of the people of God? What should the church do when it is subject to ridicule in the public square, when believers are maligned, when following Christ appears to be dishonorable? Now, I don't know if you've been reading or listening, watching, on, uh, whether it's in the newspaper or social media or in your communities, on your job, but these days Christianity is getting a very bad press And more and more, you and I feel like aliens in society. We're treated as such very often. And there's reason for that. I mean, we we come along in a pluralistic world, and we say that Jesus is, according to John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We make some exclusive claims which are antithetical to our world today. Our stance against abortion has subjected churches to considerable ridicule and pushback. And the norms that many churches have adopted regarding sexual ethics are at variance with our culture's embrace of sexual liberty. Truth in the workplace comes in conflict with an ethic of power which endorses the philosophy that makes right. And your position in the hierarchy makes things right. You must obey those above you, regardless of whether it is just or not. There are unjust business practices that we get called into, that we're called to participate in. So standing for justice and truth in the marketplace is sometimes extremely difficult. Now, Peter had to advise the believers in Asia Minor, the churches to which he wrote, that if they're going to suffer, it should not be for their own sin. It should not be for their own wrongdoing. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as a criminal, or even as a mischief maker in 1 Peter 4.15. You know, and, and, and in our day, um, sometimes believers get uh, maligned because they conform to the way of Christ instead of the, the uh, way of the world. But at other times, we bring it upon ourselves. You know that? Sometimes we bring ridicule upon ourselves. We get maligned for cause. Uh, sometimes we're viewed as... Uh, intolerant or judgmental towards others rather than demonstrating the love of Christ to all people. Sometimes we get accused of hypocrisy. We say one thing and we do another. Sometimes we we get accused of of greed. We see a lot of churches that are uh, really about the finances and and, uh, you know, from um, uh, part of our old Pentecostal community is the, the prosperity gospel that is all about, uh, about riches. Uh, we're accused of um, uh, some Christians have engaged in sexual infidelity and domination in their churches by powerful figures. And the stories about, about Hillsong, the stories about Willow, the stories about Mars Hill are agonizing and very, very public. Sometimes we're accused, and rightly so, of racism, sexism, misogyny, lust for political power, which sees Christian nationalism as the right way to follow Christ. And I want to say here very clearly that Christian nationalism is not where it's at 
is not where it's at. And also our historic support for colonialism and slavery. And even the, the effects of that in our day, the prejudice that is expressed towards indigenous peoples and Native Americans and others, um, African Americans in the land, uh, colonialism and slavery, the sins that were unleashed that that time are still with us today. And we have the images of the macho Jesus that have really uh, come out, which confuse the daylights out of me, which uh, present the gospel of Christ as power with power-driven and, and male-dominated imagery. Now, I'm a guy, you know, okay, so I'm really comfortable with, with being a guy, but sometimes it's all this macho Jesus stuff that is not where Christ is at. Hello? It's not where Christ is, is at. The question that Jeremiah faces and that Peter faced, and this is, how are we to live in society? Is there another way? And this is what I'd like to leave you with. Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. Pray on its behalf, for in their welfare you will find welfare. And Peter then talks about doing good. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. And then he says, for it's God's will that you do what is good, And you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. The call to do good. Our calling is to live together in community and love. Forgiving one another, accepting one another, but also doing good in society. And this language is not common to us, but it was very, very common in the ancient world. Um... Uh, we think about the way that Jesus acted. He um, welcomed women, children, sinners, the poor, the rejected. Uh, he sent his apostles out to bring good news to those who were outside the Gentiles. But he also did good to, for people. He went about healing uh, those who were ill, feeding those who were hungry, forgiving those who had lost their way like the prodigal son. And Peter, in, when he gets to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter uh, 10, he talks about Jesus' ministry, saying that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, this language of doing good is found over and over in the ancient world as well. Um, there's a, a number of uh, slides here that uh, are taken from inscription. I've just skipped ahead a little bit. Um, back up one. Doing good. The language of doing good appears in a lot of inscriptions in the ancient world. And I've got some of them up here. The city of Athens praised a benefactor. This is a language of social benefaction, doing good. Athens praised the benefactor, saying, be it resolved to praise him because he is a good man and he does whatever good he can do for the people of Athens. It is resolved that Menelaus be considered a benefactor. And so uh, another is honored, as a benefactor of the city, a good man, he does whatever good he is able to do. 
and another person notices somebody who uh, does whatever good he's able to perform for the citizens and the benefactors for all in the city. And it was a social obligation to honor those who had done good. That's what was expected in society. So an inscription from Kos, the island of Kos, says, so that we ourselves may be seen by those who propose to bestow benefactions on us to give appropriate rewards, to praise, and to crown them. So Peter says that he wants the believer to do good, and he mentions the government as an agent that punishes the evildoer and gives praise to the one who does good. Now, I don't know about you, I've never been stopped by the police and praised for my driving. Okay? Um, maybe that could be taken wrong. I, I, I don't think I drive too crazy. Okay? But, but it, we, we don't think about the government honoring the one who does good. But this was a, a social obligation at the time. And Peter says that he wants these believers to do good. I've got a, 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 a slide here from the city of Corinth. This is a marvelous inscription that is uh, down by the side of the, the theater, if you're ever there. And it's about Erastus. And Erastus, this guy here that's named in this inscription, is the same person that we find in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse uh, 23. Uh, Paul says, Erastus, because Paul's writing from Corinth to the Romans, he said, Erastus the city treasurer, sends you greetings. Now look at this. This is the same guy. How's your Latin? Have any of you taken Latin? Okay, good. <laughs> he'll help. What's your name? Okay, he'll help. Okay, if uh, we need it here. It says Erastus and SP, which means at his own expense, supercunium, uh, pro aedilita, that's when he was named as the Adil, city official. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Strassus pro idealita, and there's the SP down there in second line, uh, at his own expense, Stravid. That means that he built this. So here's one of our brothers in Christ who has a, f- a high governmental f- uh, position, and he, throughout of his resources, built a road. Now, we don't have to do that this day, but the idea is still there. Erastus, our brother, was a benefactor in the city. Now, there's an amazing thing that happens in the New Testament. You know, Jesus is there at the temple, and he's seeing everybody toss all their money into the temple treasury, and then a poor widow comes along. She puts in all that she has, which is two small copper coins, uh, uh, a pruta, uh, and she tosses those in, and Jesus says that she is the one that gave more than anyone else. So Jesus mixes up the idea of doing good and and social benefaction, and it's not simply about the amount of wealth that you have, but any person, no matter how much they've got in their piggy bank, no matter what they have as resources, can do good, can seek the welfare of the city, can do benefit for others. And you know, Uh, In our day, a lot of Christians think that the way that we are to live in society is through engaging in the culture wars. And I want to just say, that's not the way to go. That's not the way that Peter would prescribe. We're called to do good in society. And we've done this 
through history. Christians have been at the forefront, were at the forefront, like Wilberforce or Jonathan Blanchard, one of the founders of Wheaton College, led in the abolition of slavery. Uh, some, not all, one wish that they're all, marched uh, in the civil rights movement against uh, the segregation and the Jim Crow laws here in the United States. Christians were at the forefront, have been at the forefront, of establishing clinics and, and hospitals. When we lived in Costa Rica, the main hospital in town, apart from the government hospital, was Clinica Biblica, uh, the, founded by, by Christians, and Caravanas de Buena Voluntad, caravans of goodwill, that brought medical care to places in Costa Rica where no other Medicare, medical care was available. Uh, Deborah, I'm going to boast on here for a second, ran a, a clinic in Caballona in the Dominican Republic uh, where there was, at that time, no medical care. She was doing good for the community. Uh, we sought means to help and feed those who are poor, and we fought poverty, which Gustavo Gutierrez calls institutional violence. We've been concerned with the orphaned and the widows and their plight, and we've tried to supply and help them. We've been there for the grieving when they lose a loved one. We've helped immigrants, and we, at least some today, and not enough of us, some today have been at the forefront of trying to stop gun violence in our world. And this needs to be stopped. Can I hear an amen? We need to stop it. And I'm very, very concerned by the guns and gods theology that you see some places. Hebrews 13:16 talks about raising our hand, lifting our voices, praising God with the fruit of our lips, but he also talks about doing good as part of our worship, as part of our service. The gospel comes in both word and deed. In the book of Acts, at chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke summarizes the ministry of Jesus about all that he did and taught. But I'd like to close with a word from John Wesley. Now, I told you I got Pentecostal roots, but Deborah and I are now members of Gary United Methodist Church. So we think John Wesley is cool. I don't know how well he goes down here. Uh, are we more John Calvin than John Wesley here? I, yeah, okay, okay. Do, do you like Wesley? He was a great guy, circling right and everything. But I love this quote from him because it talks about what we're thinking about today. Do all the good. In fact, can you read that with me? Would you? Read it with me. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And the people of God said, God bless you all.